Church, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. As we continue our series today, my message is called The Origins of Temptation and Testing. Genesis chapter 3. In the 1960s and 1970s, a successful comedian popularized the phrase, the devil made me do it. He'd do something crazy on the show, smile right in the camera, and then say, the devil made me do it. Even in a culture that rejects the supernatural, it sees value in bringing in the devil, even if it's a joke. Just blame the devil to avoid responsibility. The devil made me do it. One psychologist can't help but notice the irony. When someone is kind, wonderful, or generous, they never say, the angel made me do it. The good stuff you see, oh yeah, the angel made me do it. As we continue our origin series through the book of Genesis, we'll be looking at the source. Where does temptation and testing come from? And as always, our source of truth isn't popular psychology, it's not popular culture, but the Word of God. What does God's Word have to say about temptation and testing? The devil plays a part for sure, but not the biggest part. And this is the big idea I want to leave us with today. When tested, we see the true condition of our heart and how desperately we need God. When tested, we see the true condition of our hearts and how desperately we need God. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Father in heaven, as we sit and hear you speak, I pray, God, that you would help me, that you would help me uh, to serve your people, to proclaim your truth, your everlasting, eternal, and unchanging word that is powerful and speaks to us even today, even now. Give us ears to hear. Give us a heart of faith that we will not just be hearers of the word, but doers. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Last week, we learned about the true identity of the crafty serpent from Genesis 3.1. Created good and glorious, holy and pure, Satan tragically fell into sin because of his pride. And at his fall, Satan and his followers were thrown down to the earth, and his fate and his destiny was sealed with no hope of redemption. God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, 2 Peter 2.4. And this crafty serpent, the Arum, confronts the naked humans, the Arumim. As sovereign ruler and governor, God allows Satan to confront Adam and Eve. He permits it. It's actually part of his sovereign plan. And yet, the Bible's very clear, God doesn't tempt people. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil 
and he himself tempts no one, James 1.13. So God doesn't tempt anyone. God isn't tempted by sin. He, doesn't, he isn't drawn to or attracted by sin. And yet God does test us. God tests us. I know, my God, that you test the heart, 1 Chronicles 29.17. Last week we saw King Hezekiah tested when that huge army from Assyria comes with the plan to conquer Jerusalem and Judah. And then we saw the angel of the Lord strike down 185,000 soldiers. But tests don't just come from the obvious attacks. Afterwards, God tested Hezekiah in a time of peace and prosperity. 2 Chronicles 32:31 says, God left him, this is King Hezekiah, to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. Testing often comes at moments when we think we're secure. Sometime this week, read 2 Chronicles chapter 32. 2 Chronicles chapter 32. And then see how Hezekiah does on his second test. It's fascinating. But church, tests shouldn't surprise us, whether it's the obvious attack of 200,000 soldiers or the attack that comes when we think we're secure. We should expect them. God tests us to know what is in our hearts. But here's something even more interesting, something that we don't often think about. Did you know that mature believers actually ask God to test them? The wise and mature believers actually pray for the testing and refining of their faith, that God would reveal deeply buried sins so they can be excavated and removed. When we were purchasing this building, we did some careful inspections, but we were advised to go beyond standard inspections. At one point, there was an underground oil storage tank used to heat the building. The tank was supposedly removed decades ago, but no one could find any records of its removal. The last thing you want to do is to purchase a building and then realize there's an underground oil tank that's leaking hazardous toxins into the environment. So we paid for a special soil test. The inspector took soil samples several feet below the ground. Thankfully, the test revealed that there was no tank and no leaks. But we didn't know for sure until that test was done. That testing verified that there was nothing below the surface. And if there was, we would know about it and we could do something about it. In the same way, those who are mature in faith, they pray for testing. They pray for testing. They look for testing. That we might know the corruption and weakness of our own heart. And only when we know about that corruption and weakness can we excavate it, dig it out with God's help. So church, how often do we pray that God would test us, that he would try our heart and minds? How often do we pray, God, test me today. Reveal my sinful thoughts. Reveal my sinful desires. Reveal my sinful words and actions. God, show me how wicked I am. Well, I don't do that as often as I should. In Psalm 139, that's what we see David pray. That's what he prays, Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. This is King David. He's praying for God to test him, to search him, 
to uncover what lies beneath the surface. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. God, show me any grievous way, any sinful way, any way I fall short so that you can rescue me out of that and lead me into the way everlasting. And this isn't just a one-off prayer. If you study the scriptures, you see that this, there's a pattern among God's people, among those who walk with the Lord, who know their God. Jeremiah prays, but you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. Jeremiah 12, 3. And when tested, we see the true condition of our heart and how desperately we need God. So church, let's not run away from testing, but let's actually make it a regular prayer to God, a prayer for testing and refining that we, that we might see the true corruption of our hearts so that we can dig it out with God's help and be made more and more like Jesus. Last week, we saw the backstory behind Satan, his origin story. We saw how Satan tempts, but God tests. Same action, but two different purposes. This week, I want to explore the backstory behind testing. Why is there temptation in testing? Why would God create a universe where there would be temptation? Well, God, gave, uh, God created Adam and Eve, and he gave them real choices with real responsibilities. As Rick taught us several weeks ago, God didn't create two robots. Adam and Eve had the freedom to obey or to disobey. Let's go back and review Genesis 2, 16 and 17. This is God speaking his word to Adam. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam was given freedom to enjoy every tree in the garden, except one. Except one. It was a test of love and loyalty to see what was really in Adam's heart. It was God's way to search and try and test Adam's heart. And we see in the Garden of Eden that there were two paths laid out for Adam, two ways of living and then two different outcomes. Two special trees show this. Genesis 2.9 says, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's the testing tree, that's the forbidden tree, but there's a second tree, the tree of life. The tree of life. The tree of life shows up in the book of Revelation in the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. Eating from the tree of life means gaining, obtaining eternal life. And after a period of testing, God would give Adam and Eve access to that tree, that tree of life, and then they would enter into eternal glory. Revelation 21, verses 2 and 3. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And church, this is what we were destined for, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. A holy God dwelling in a holy place with his holy people, and nothing else in all creation was destined for that eternal glory. Theologians call this the covenant of works. The covenant of works. God promised Adam life if he obeyed him. But if he disobeyed, God warned Adam of certain death. Obedience leads to life. Obedience leads to blessing and everlasting happiness with God. Disobedience leads to death. The curse and everlasting judgment away from the presence of God. This is the covenant of works, life for obedience and death for disobedience. We don't know how long this test would have been. Adam and Eve could have been tested for days, weeks, maybe even years. But here's the thing, not forever, not forever, not, a, not an everlasting test. It would have been for a limited time. If the testing had lasted forever, then Adam and Eve could have never reached their goal. If the testing lasted forever, they would have never made it to the new heavens and new earth or eaten from the tree of life. And even worse, the ability to slip up and fall would always hang over their heads. It would be a limited test in the Garden of Eden while Adam and Eve were in a state of innocency, in a state of innocency, created good, unholy, and yet able to fall. Think of a stuntman walking on a tightrope suspended between two poles with platforms. He's walking on this tightrope, but he could fall at any moment. There's no safety while he's on the tightrope, but once he crosses over and reaches the other side, he's good, he's safe. In a similar way, Adam and Eve were walking on a tightrope in Eden, a tightrope where they could potentially fall at any moment, a tightrope where they were closer to death than they were closer to life. One slip and they would plunge themselves and all humanity into destruction and ruin. And yet they were destined to cross over and reach a state of confirmed righteousness. Confirmed righteousness. What does that mean? That means with their obedience proven and the test passed, they would have their heart's greatest desire. No possibility of sin, no possibility of death, no possibility of slipping and falling. That's what confirmed righteousness means, not able to fall anymore. So that's the test that's laid out before them. I wonder if they knew the magnitude of their choices, if they knew what was at stake, if they knew that eternity was hanging in the balance. The stakes couldn't be higher. But that's actually where each of us are at. God has put eternity into our hearts. Our choices today reverberate into eternity. How we would live differently if we remember that more often. To remember that this life here and now is a time of testing. That this life here and now matters for all eternity. So let's see how that test unfolds. Let's look at Genesis 3, verse 1. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Notice how the Satan goes right up to the woman. God gave Adam and Eve dominion over every living thing, Genesis 1.21. So there's no reason that Eve should be afraid of the serpent. The serpent doesn't have dominion over her. She has dominion over the serpent. Satan was only a suitor to woo, not a king to compel, from Thomas Watson. Only a suitor to woo, not a king to compel, which means none of us could ever say, the devil made me do it. But I think the crafty serpent chose to confront Eve for a reason. Eve is more vulnerable than Adam. Do you remember when God spoke his word to Adam in Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17? Eve wasn't created. God spoke his word to Adam. Adam names the animals. And then Eve is created later. So Eve isn't there. She's also not in the position of authority in the family. It's a reminder for us as husbands, as we consider this passage, that it's not enough for us to know God's word. We have to teach and instruct and help our wives and our children to understand and apply God's word. Notice what Satan does in this question. God said, you may surely eat of every tree. Satan said, you shall not eat of any tree. As Kent Hughes writes, Satan twisted, you may surely eat, to you shall not eat. How did surely eat become shall not eat? You see, God wanted Adam and Eve to enjoy the glories of Eden. You may surely eat of every tree. Enjoy it. Go wild. Sample like crazy. Eat to your heart's content. All this amazing, beautiful, delicious fruit, it's all for you. You see, God could have made only one kind of fruit, and it could have been bland and tasteless but he didn't. Our family loves fruit, and that's one of the reasons we enjoy summer so much. Summer fruit is amazing. There's things like cherries and watermelons, strawberries and blueberries and blackberries, and we love fruit that's juicy and sweet and fresh. Now, sometimes we'll get the one-off bland apple or tasteless watermelon, but generally you can't go wrong with fruit that's fresh and in season. The fruit in Eden was always in season. It was always juicy. It was always sweet and fresh because everything God made was very good. There was never the one-off bad apple or bland watermelon or rotten strawberry. Only pre-fall perfection. Pre-fall perfection. So Satan's initial strategy is twofold. Number one, distract Adam and Eve from enjoying what God gave them. And then number two, slander God. So distract and then slander. Distract them from God's generosity, God's goodness, God's bounty, and then slander by attacking God's character. Give the impression that God is spiteful, mean, obsessively jealous, and self-protective. Anytime we forget all the good things that God has given us or think that God is holding out on us, we're actually playing right into Satan's hand. We're playing right into his playbook. And this is what happens when we complain. I mean, we do that all the time, don't we? Satan wants us to complain because that's how he turns our hearts away from God. So when are you tempted to complain? 
When am I tempted to complain? Maybe it's a situation at work. Maybe it's something unexpected and unplanned for. Maybe it's an unplanned car repair. Maybe it's an unplanned or unexpected delay. And a part of me is thinking at this point, Snake, is that all you got? Is that all you got? Adam and Eve are enjoying the best fruit. And you're suggesting that God doesn't want them to enjoy it. Adam and Eve, at this point, when they're interacting with the snake, they're either feasting or finishing up a feast. So how effective is Satan going to be? All Eve has to do is to point to all that lavish bounty, all those trees in the Garden of Eden, all the fruit she's enjoying, the glorious generosity of God, and then quote scripture. Well, God said, you may surely eat up every tree in the garden. Case closed, problem solved, Satan be gone. But that's not how the story ends. Let's see what happens next in verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, we may, eat of the tree of the, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. If you're paying attention, you notice that she doesn't quote scripture quite right. What does she leave out? Take a moment. Look at Genesis 2, 16 and 17. What does she leave out? Let's compare Genesis 3, 2 with Genesis 2, 16, that original command that's printed in your handout. You see what she left out? She left out two very important words. She left out surely, and then she left out every. She left out surely, and she left out every. What she should have said is, you may surely eat of every tree. So maybe Satan's strategy to distract and slander is a bit more effective than we might think. First, we see Eve minimizes. Eve minimizes God's goodness by taking away from God's word. That's not looking good. Anytime we disbelieve God's goodness, we're one step closer to falling away from God. Well, if God's not good, why should we follow his way? If God's not good, why shouldn't I forge my own path? Eve minimizes God's goodness in the command to surely eat from every tree. Second, Eve maximizes God's strictness. She maximizes God's strictness. She adds to God's word. Let's look at verse 3. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Eve added to God's word. God never said, Neither shall you touch it. God only said in Genesis 2.17, You shall not eat. God never said, don't touch it. So she's making God more strict than he really is. I wonder why. Pastor Ken Hughes explains one possibility. When we don't like a prohibition or a warning, we magnify its strictness. The suggestion that our superior is unjust. They're unjust. It mitigates our culpability. And what does that mean? It means it takes away our responsibility takes away our responsibility. So did Eve magnify God's strictness because she didn't like that command? Was she choosing to make God look unreasonable, make the command look unreasonable? Because if it's unreasonable, then you don't have to obey it. Why obey something or someone who's unreasonable? 
But church, how often have we thought that way or let creeping suspicions lead us to think that way? Well, if God really loved me, he would want me to enjoy blank. If God was really reasonable, he would give me blank. But if you're paying close attention, not only did she magnify God's strictness, make God seem unreasonable for even touching the fruit, she added something else. She said that the forbidden tree was in the midst of the garden. Midst of the garden. The word midst means in the heart of, what's likely in the center. But Genesis 2.9 says that the tree of life is in the midst. That should have been the center of their thoughts and attention. They should have kept their eye on the prize, the goal of one day eating from the tree of life and entering into eternal glory. She can't see all the other trees from which she can freely eat, but now she's fixated on that forbidden tree. That tree is now in the midst, in the center of their hearts and minds, which serves as a cautionary warning to us as well. What can our hearts get fixated on? What can our hearts get fixated on? How can we be blinded to everything else around me and think that that one thing that maybe we don't have, that that's the most important thing? How can we get fixated on certain things? So Eve minimizes God's goodness. She maximizes God's strictness. And third, Eve jeopardizes her own safety. Notice the very last phrase in verse 3. Lest you die. Lest you die. Remember God said, you shall surely die. Eve says, lest you die. In other words, Eve says, maybe. Maybe you'll die. Not certain. She injects a fog of confusion into what had laser-sharp focus. The penalty isn't you might die or you might not die. We're not sure. It's you shall surely die. And there's a world of difference between surely and maybe. When there's a bottle of poison, you need it to say don't drink or you shall surely die. If the poison said don't drink lest you die, that's false advertising. Your safety is jeopardized when the warning isn't crystal clear. Don't drink lest you die puts your life in jeopardy. So Eve minimizes God's generosity, maximizes God's strictness, and worst of all, jeopardizes her own safety. Minimize, maximize, and jeopardize. When tested, we see the true condition of our heart and how desperately we need God. At this point, Eve's defenses are down, and now Satan seizes the opportunity. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. At this point, Eve is already meeting Satan halfway, so he just leads her to the next and final step. You see the progression. God says, you will surely die. Eve says, lest you die. Now the serpent says, you will not surely die. The serpent tells Eve, that surely die stuff, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. It is interesting that three times the word of the Lord is quoted, but never appropriately. Once it is questioned in a misleading way, once it is paraphrased with major changes, and once it is flatly denied. 
from Alan Ross. The doctrine of divine judgment we see here is the very first doctrine attacked in the Bible. God says, you will surely die, and Satan said, you will not surely die. And it continues to this day. How often do people, how often do we think about the reality of divine judgment? How often do we think about that? How often do we talk about that? How often do we talk about our readiness, our preparation, whether our family members are ready, whether our neighbors are ready for that day of eternal judgment? But it's a truth reiterated in God's word over and over again. You don't get too far in the Bible without seeing God's judgment. First on Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, then on Cain in Genesis 4, and then later the worldwide flood in Genesis 6 and 7, and on and on. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil, Ecclesiastes 12, 14. There's a popular misconception that the God of the Old Testament is the God of judgment, the God of wrath. But the God of the New Testament is the God of love, the God of mercy. People like the God of the New Testament, but the God of the Old Testament, not so much. But it's the same God. God doesn't change. God remains the same. In fact, even though the New Testament is much shorter than the Old Testament, judgment is more clear, more frequent, and much more explicit in the New Testament. He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, Acts 17, 30. Or how about Hebrews 9, 27? It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And probably the most sobering and frightening passage is this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. It doesn't get more intense, more alarming, or more serious than Revelation chapter 20. But it's in the Bible. God has spoken that to us. He has given that passage to us for a reason. God is a God of love. Don't get me wrong. He is a God of love. God is love. But he's a God of holy love, a God of sinless love, a God of perfect and just love. And in his love, he warns us about hell, the lake of fire, because it's real. And he doesn't want anyone to go there. And there are some here or even online who need to think about that reality of divine judgment you're here this morning, you're here today, but you're not a Christian. Your parents might be Christians, your friends might be Christians, but you haven't repented of your sins and trusted in Christ alone to save you. I tell you this because I love you. One day God will ask you to give an account for every sinful thought, word, and deed. And you know there are things that you've done that you shouldn't have done. 
There are things that you should do that you haven't done. And you know you've fallen short of God's law, what he requires of us. And on top of that, there are sins that only you and God know about. So what will you do with your sins? What will you do with them? If you wait until then, it'll be too late. It's appointed for a man to die once, and then comes judgment. So if you haven't yet done so, repent of your sin. Turn away from your sin. Cast them aside. Run as fast and as hard as you can away from your sin so that you might run as fast and as hard as you can to Christ. Jesus Christ came to this planet Earth and he loved you enough to live a perfect life that none of us could live and die the death that you and I deserved. He shed his blood on that cross for you so that you might never have to suffer eternal hell for your sins against an infinitely holy God. So surrender to him today. So there are two ways before us, two ways before you, always has been and always will be. Will we walk by faith in God's word, believing in his promises, believing in his threats? Or do we walk by sight, doing what is right in our own eyes? The question before us, the question before Eve, is who has the ultimate authority in your life? Who has the ultimate authority? Is it God? Does his word define truth and reality for you? In other words, do you stand under, under God's word? Or is it you? Are you the ultimate authority? Do you define truth and reality? In other words, do you stand over God's word? What will it be? Will it be under or will it be over? And that's why our Sunday gatherings are so important. God speaks to us as a church, his body and his bride, when we gather together. The church isn't an online experience. God is not a virtual God. This right here, the gathered church, the gathered people of God, this is where we hear the voice of our good shepherd and respond in faith. This is where we sit under the word of God together as his people. And once again, Genesis is that watershed. Water will flow in opposite directions to opposite destinations. Standing under God's word or standing over God's word will lead in opposite directions and opposite destinations. When God speaks, it's not up to us to revise it. It's not up to us. We need to remember that. That's why God warns us in places like Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take away from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. And we stand under the word when we avoid any temptation to add to God's word or take away from God's word. But when we choose to just receive it humbly. The tempter's final argument is this. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan offers a way for the creature to become the creator. You, a creature, can be like God. You don't have to stand under God's word. You can stand over God's word. You can be your own authority, define your own truth and reality. He entices human beings. He entices us today with the same trap he fell into thousands of years before. 
Don't be a creature. Throw off those oppressive chains of authority. Don't pay attention to those God-given limits or boundaries. Transgress them. So how will Eve do? Will she embrace her creaturehood and make it to the other side of Eden, into eternal glory, into the new heavens and the new earth, as she eats from the tree of life? Will she take God at his word as a grateful creature? Next week, we'll look at how Eve responds to this testing, this temptation. Most of us know how this chapter ends. Most of us know that the Bible is devote, most of the Bible is devoted to how God cleans up the mess that we made in the garden. Adam, the first son of God, failed when he was tested. And Israel, the next son of God, would also fail. But another son would come. The true son, tempted like us in every way, yet without sin. Jesus Christ would do what every other son failed to do, face the full power of temptation, yet still choose to obey, yet still choose to live in obedience, to live under God's word, under God's authority, under God's plan. Jesus was obedient even to the point of death, even death on the cross. And he did that for you and me. He walked that tightrope for us perfectly, never falling from to the left or to the right, never wavering until he reached the other side. And he did that while carrying us, his bride. He did that, walking that tightrope to beat temptation to make sure that we have the power to beat temptation and make it to the other side. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And church, if you are holding fast to Christ, if you have come to Christ by faith, Jesus Christ is our way of escape. If you are in him, you have everything you need to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and say yes to holiness and obedience. And so because he is victorious, we are victorious in him. And church, that's the good news of the gospel. That's what we proclaim week after week. That's what we live and build our lives upon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, we know Adam and Eve fell off that tightrope, but Jesus made it across. He made it across carrying us and carrying us safely to the other side. And so, Lord Jesus, we look to you. We trust in you. We place all of our hope in you. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 <laughs> As we uh, finish our time together with the benediction, let's remember, church, when tested, we see the true condition of our heart and how desperately we need God. Church, God intends for us to dig deep, to do regular soil tests in our heart, to go deep beneath the surface to find out what toxins lay beneath the surface. Jesus teaches us from Mark 7, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, 
sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Those are the things that lurk deep beneath the surface of every single human heart. And so, church, we are daily confronted with temptation, even when we don't realize it. As the Puritan pastor John Owen wrote, temptation is most strong when it's least felt. Temptation is most strong when it is least felt. Hezekiah thought he was secure, but he was vulnerable. Samson thought he was secure in the arms of Delilah, but he was vulnerable. So church, where are you and I most vulnerable? Do you tend to minimize God's goodness? Minimize God's goodness? Do you tend to maximize God's strictness? Do you jeopardize your own safety, thinking that sin is no big deal? Church, let us make this a regular prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. From Psalm 139. And church, go with these words this morning. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Amen.